0: Welcome to the Intimacy Lab. I'm Michelle Renee, an intimacy guide, surrogate partner, and professional cuddler. We're here to talk about intimacy in a much broader view than what you're probably thinking. Most people think about intimacy as sex. We're gonna break that apart here. Welcome to the Lab. Welcome back to the Intimacy Lab. Today, I'm excited to be joined by my colleague, Aubrey Lancaster who is an asexuality and aromanticism coach, or would it be coach or educator? Educator. Educator. Okay. Um, I'll have you do an actual introduction here. But um, Aubrey, I always like to say, like, where did I meet this person that is sitting across from me? Because um, the way I see this podcast is about like, kind of my usual cast of characters. Like, who do I surround myself with? And you are definitely like my go-to in this realm because I've gone to you myself, but you also just, you show up to the same spaces that I'm in. And so we get to know each other a little bit. So it's great to be able to be like, this is part of my life. I want to talk about it on my podcast. Um, So thanks for joining me. Do you want to give you a, like a little introduction of who you are?
1: Sure. So yeah, I'm an asex Certified Sexuality Educator with a focus in Asexuality and Aromanticism. I've been working in general sexuality um, education through adult product sales for uh, 16 years before I turned my career to focus more on educating sexuality professionals on Asexuality and Aromanticism, which I've been doing for the last few years now
0: we have the toy thing in common. I almost forgot about that until you brought that up. Cause that's kind of where I kind of stuck my toes into this world first. Like I even forget it in my story when I'm telling people like, how did you get into this work? I almost always forget that I did do toy sales for a while. Yeah, Um, And I didn't even do like the, the jump on board with an established company. I was like, I'm a, I'm a go getter. And I went out and like, opened up wholesale accounts and like crafted my own like like really curated what I wanted to sell and yeah probably another one of those things where I got the idea in the shower and had the website up by the afternoon kind of weird things but no it took it took more work than that that was a big (laughs) one but it was part of my history Mm -hmm. that I kind of forget about because that's probably um one of those ways where my ease of talking about sex showed up in my life as like you could do this
1: mm.
0: and then it's kind of keeps evolving
1: I, I i was not at ease at all when i first started
0: no no um the person who helped me get
1: started my my sponsor um when i said you know like i don't really know anything about these products how do i educate people about this and she's like well you know the products sell themselves it's kind of like just talking about a teacup it's not a teacup <laughs> <laughs> no but what what ended up happening is after doing it for just a few months and learning about the products and learning about everything they did, I realized that very quickly I did know more than most of the people at my parties just because there is so little information out there for adults and certainly not 20 years ago. So um, yeah, I, I learned a lot very quickly and started being able to share that with people and realize just how much we needed this kind of education and in those private spaces that I was doing in-home parties. And so it just really expanded from there. And I definitely spent the time to learn about it, but I I started in the industry and then learned about it.
0: (laughs) On the job training, right? Yeah. Yeah. better way to learn
1: than to teach.
0: It's the same thing with like professional cuddling. You you can go through a training, but that doesn't. You really don't learn what you really need to learn until you get on the job, right? You can mm-hmm. learn all the theory of like, what, why boundaries, and how do we establish those, and here's some some structure to the work. But you really learn how you're going to show up in that space when you're doing it.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. It, it Toys. was. I was gonna say toy. The toy party is like. I think. One of my first ones I went to was with my mother-in-law back at the time, not my current mother-in-law, previous mother-in-law. And I remember taking my mother to a party and how embarrassed she was and uncomfortable. And I really relished in that and had a good time. I don't know. I remember buying her a toy. I bought her a vibrator for Christmas that year. I might've bought it at that party. And when she, after she, she passed like 20 years ago and we were going through her stuff, she still had it in the original wrapper. Like it never had been taken out. (laughs) She didn't touch it. Oh my goodness. Yeah. But I mean, nowadays, Michelle and and how I practice consent, I don't know if if I would have like kind of, I don't know if I forced forced her her into coming with me or just just coerced coerced her her a little bit. I'm not sure, but either way, way, it was a bonding moment for, for mother daughter. I'm sure.
1: I gave out so many vibrators this presence over the years, probably not as appropriate as I thought it was at the time, but.
0: Where's that line, right? It's like, yeah. we want, we want people to get more comfortable. And as someone, I mean, when you're getting the stuff at discounts, it's also nice to spread the love around a little bit too. So.
1: Totally. And mm-hmm. I, I have like a weird sense of not getting embarrassed about things sometimes. So it wasn't embarrassing for me. So I'm like, can't be as embarrassing for them.
0: <laughs> I know, I'm al- sometimes it was. I've always thought masturbation sleeves specifically, wouldn't they be great to hand out to every like 13 year old for their birthday? And then I'm also so like, like, is that appropriate, Michelle? I just don't know. I have no sense of what is like, standard operating procedure and do I want to be in standard operating procedure as far as like what is socially acceptable and oh there's a whole nother conversation about like how how to raise a sex positive family and yeah
1: I have a six-year-old it's a challenge but I I work primarily with adults I've never worked with children so those are conversations I'm really having to learn as I go
0: I hear, I think I, I was reading a book recently and they actually, um, brought up a book from Dr. Lex Brown from the, mm-hmm. the incoming president for ASEC. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that she had a book for kids. So.
1: I didn't either.
0: Well, to now you to know. Yeah. Um, I'm reading a lot about perimenopause right now because
1: mm-hmm. that's my
0: next stage of life. And it was mm-hmm. a, a book called something like what the fresh hell is this? Mm-hmm. I think that's what it's called. Anyways, I digress. Okay. So before we dive into asexuality and aromanticism, I have to initiate you with the we're not really strangers card of okay. the day. On my last episode, I learned that doing three cards takes too much time. And we were an hour into the episode before we even finished.
1: Oh, wow. the third card. okay.
0: We had lots to talk about. I don't think ours will take that long. Okay, so we picked picked three cards before we started recording. We picked the mm-hmm. one that we wanted to, to do. So we had some consent in this. It's not being sprung on either one of us. Yeah. So we'll take turns answering. Do I seem like a cat or a dog person? And I'm going to answer for you, and you're going to answer for me, but I know you have insider information. I do. I think you do.
1: Oh, no. Maybe
0: not. If you If you're confused by that, then you don't.
1: Then I don't.
0: No. So do you think I'm a cat or a dog person?
1: I, I was going to guess a cat person because you're very much into that sensual kind of feelings. and um, But you also strike me as very independent, like you could be left alone for a while and be totally fine with that. Um, and you decide when you want to be affectionate with others.
0: I love that it. answer. I also think cats are so good with their nose. Mm. Like but I it's so funny. I thought you already knew this answer because I have my dog with me a lot on calls yeah. and he shows up in videos a lot. So I I think I'm more of a dog person as far as for pets. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think I act more like a cat in a <laughs> lot of ways but I also have a lot of dog characteristics I love a good like pat on the head and a good girl like that is a a good thing for me um, mm-hmm. so maybe I'm a fox maybe I'm the middle ground somewhere but that wasn't one of the options yeah we have cats yeah, yeah. also they're fine like they're not mine they're Paul's they they like me because I feed them, <laughs> but we don't, I also am more allergic to cats than I am dogs. I'm allergic to both, but the cats mm-hmm. definitely bother me more. But I do think as a, uh, like if I was going to go join the furry world or something, maybe I would be, my, my Sona might be a little more on the cat side. Okay. That would be a good, a good guess. Um, Aubrey, hmm. I wasn't thinking about this question from a place of like personality. I was just thinking like guessing, do you, what's your pet of preference, but, um, cause I was going to say dog and I still feel like I'm drawn to the dog answer and I can't really say why I can just see you like at a dog park or something like that's, I don't know why.
1: I actually volunteered at a dog rescue for a couple of years, a while back. Yeah. And I have, um. Two small chihuahuas. (laughs) Uh, I actually am also allergic to cats. So Mm -hmm. I grew up with cats. Same. But when I finally discovered that I was allergic, that was no longer a future pet option. So I switched to dogs. So chihuahuas are kind of a good mix of the two, though, because they're small and compact Mm -hmm. like a cat. They get up on, like, the back of the couch and stuff. Yep. (laughs) Yep. They're very big personalities, um, but they're also very loud. They, they are, fast.
0: and I I've had a Chihuahua before, and my dog now I think is probably part Chihuahua. We know for sure part Pekinese,
1: mm.
0: um, but definitely has the Chihuahua kind of vibe to him. A little like a little high strung. We'll just <laughs> say that he barks a lot, and he also does sit on the back of the couch like a cat. So
1: yeah,
0: yeah, definitely a, a trait that they share. So. Well, that was fun. I didn't think about the way you thought about it, which is kind of how um, communication goes sometimes.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So we should probably, like, give a little um, entry-level quickie. What is asexuality? And we can can touch on, I think it'd be important to talk about aromanticism also a little bit, just in case somebody comes across this yeah. Interview and they have a, a jumping off point. But I think what I want to make sure when we're like describing these things is like, I think people hear asexuality and they get an idea. They think they know what it mm-hmm. means. So I want to know if you could like kind of give the, it doesn't have to be a 30 second version, but as long as you need to feel like you give a little bit of a ground, uh, some grounding information here to start with.
1: Yeah. So if we want to contextualize it a little bit, I like to talk about it as both an orientation and an identity term. So as an orientation, it is an orientation where the person experiences little to no sexual attraction towards other people. Similarly, a romanticism is an orientation where the person experiences little to no romantic attraction towards other people. And the way that our society frames sexual orientation is that it asks, what's your gender? What's the gender the person you're attracted to? It assumes that those genders are going to be cisgender, that that attraction is going to be heterosexual, (laughs) and it assumes that attraction is going to be kind of this amalgamation of sexual, romantic, and emotional, and other things. And it assumes that that attraction exists. So part of what asexuality and aromanticism do is challenge some of these questions, just as much of the queer conversations challenge these questions instead of assuming what your gender is, we need to actually ask that question, what is my gender, you know, and have other people who have actually asked that question of themselves to know whether or not we are attracted to them for the gender that they are. And then that attraction aspect, we have to actually start to break that down and understand what attraction even means, that there is sexual attraction, where you may find another person hot or sexy, And, or just sexually appealing and then romantic attraction where that can be aligned with limerence or just feeling drawn to another person in a romantic sense, uh, finding another person romantically appealing, and then that emotional attraction of wanting to connect and bond over shared feelings. So as an orientation within this social framework that our society constructs, asexuality says, yes. Some people are attracted to people of same or similar gender. Some are people are attracted to people of a different gender. Some are attracted to all genders or regardless of gender. And some people are attracted to no gender. And it's just not a factor. And then as an identity term, because the orientation is not innately about desire, we're talking attraction. There still comes in that question about whether or not a person wants to engage in sexual activity, which is a part of the asexual conversation and why so many people may get confused around it. So, as an identity term, it is a way of taking agency, and it is a rejection of compulsory sexuality, a motto, normativity and singulism.
0: That was good. <laughs> You did, you did a great job because I, I went into it. I, I think the only thing I get stuck on and you kind of hit it, but I, I still don't feel like I have a really good definition of like, what is romanticism? Like yeah. I had this come up in the, we've both done um, what was the bonding project. Mm-hmm. And when I took their yeah, test, that like that? Mm-hmm. yeah. When I took their test and started to ask about romanticism in your relationship, Or relationships I was like but what is that how how it was like how often do you want romanticism in your Mm -hmm. in your week or something like that and I was like I don't even know what that I need some definitions and of course part of that thing was that they weren't giving you any definitions it was for you to define and yeah and I get really stuck in that space
1: a lot of people do That's once people realize they are on the asexual spectrum and another part of that that also needs to be regarded as the fact that there is the gray area there's you know all of these in between places so it's not one or the other there's all of this in between and all of these different circumstances um so yeah with romantic attraction there's the main components on that that people kind of get stuck on is what kind of a relationship model do I want um whether or not the person feels limerence So that intense feeling of um, infatuation, euphoria, heartbreak, uh, cognitive obsession, intrusive thoughts, all of those aspects, Um, a lot of people associate that with a crush, or kind of that feeling of fireworks, butterflies in the stomach, those sorts of elements, which for a lot of people are intrinsically linked to sexual attraction, but not for everybody. Mm -hmm. And then there's um, another element kind of of that... Uh, performative romance. How our society codes actions that are deemed romantic. And someone may experience limerence, may want a long-term partnered, committed relationship, but they may not relate to how society codes activities as romantic. So, and, and people may not feel connected to any of those or specific ones of those. Some people may really enjoy romantic activities and may want a couple partnership, but they don't experience limerence. Or they experience limerence, but they feel it's more of a platonic form of limerence, that they don't feel that need for a romantically coded relationship. Or they may want long-term partnership, but it may not involve what we would code as a romantic experience.
0: <laughs> Without Disney movies, would there even be a term for romance?
1: Yeah, well, that's a good question because culturally speaking, there's many cultures around the world that don't center romantic love and may even specifically avoid it. As um, you know, saying that is not a good reason to get into a relationship. You make terrible choices. Experiencing <laughs> romantic attraction. And that's why some uh, cultures have arranged marriages. So not just so that they can control, you know, social pairings of families, but also so that they can be like, look, you're not going to find a good match on your own. You're going to fall in love with somebody that's completely wrong for you. We will find somebody that we know is a good match for you.
0: Yeah, I, um, I had a client a while back that I, I, I dropped glimmerance in his lap as an idea and he had never heard of it before Mm -hmm. and his eyes just got very big and it was like this realization I think a lot of people think that's what love is
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and they get really stuck in that that wild feeling that up and down you know the roller coaster ride Mm -hmm. and then when that starts to calm down they think they're out of love right yeah that assumption that if you find quote the one Mm -hmm
1: that that feeling will continue forever and that's not even how biology works
0: (laughs) no that's why we say crazy in love i think comes probably from that space Mm -hmm. of the the chaos yeah that that can be that that limerence okay so where does aubrey and michelle come together in this so a little bit of my history, and I think I talked about this with you, Aubrey, when we did our consult, when I had a lot of questions around this, but if I, I, I know I did, I'm pretty sure. Cause I remember part of the conversation back in 2015, I started dating a gentleman who, um, he was a lot younger than me. He was 24. I was 39. We all know what that was about, right? I, I if I have to say it, I'll say it, but Cougars are real, and I didn't know I was one, Um, but I was in this very explorative phase of my life, and this very dashing young man came into my world, who I did not think was 24 at the time. Mm -hmm. He looked older than that. I met him at a party. I hugged him goodbye, and I never wanted to leave. Like It was just this instant, oh, this feels like home. You feel so safe, like he's this big guy, and He's the best hugger. My sister got to finally hug him the other day and she was like, kept going back for more. Um, So I met him and then I looked at his vet life profile and saw that he was 24 and I went, oh shit. Right. Cause at that time I'd had all these young men hitting me up like on OKCupid and stuff. And I was like, no, no, no. I have young, young sons myself. Like at that point, I think my young, my oldest was probably like 18 or something like that. But anyways, anyways, again the hug. Know. I never wanted to leave. What have you? Um, um sex, sex at that, at that time, time for me seemed amazing. amazing. I'll but say in retrospect, retrospect, I think I, think I was, think I, was uh, I didn't realize like what I, I wanted in a sexual relationship. So, so uh, it, it would be different for me now. But at but that, that time I just, just thought the world revolved around this man. Yeah. Oh, it was All great. was great. And, and then the, within a couple well, like, like We went to our first event together, I think, six weeks-ish. And that's how I can remember the timeline. By that event, we went a whole weekend in this hotel room and never had sex. And I was like, it already had slowed down before that. And I found myself, he was the dominant. I was, I felt very submissive to him. And I found myself like tiptoeing around trying to figure out I knew if I I asked asked for sex, sex, he would deny me because of the the sadist in him. At least that's what I thought was happening. Mm. And so it was this weird, like manipulation that I was having to kind of do to like, like, see see if we could could like butt butt up to sex and get him to want want to have have sex, sex. like to want to want to have sex. And I remember being at this kink conference and what he said he wanted to do was to, 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 to take a shower with me and just wash my hair and take care of me and why couldn't that be enough kind of like act of love for me why did it have to be the sex thing and oh did it confuse the shit out of me and i that was in july i think wasn't maybe october i started to say why are we dating we're barely having sex this is supposed to be this hot cougar relationship where I'm really just here for the sex, dude, right? Like, what why else would I be dating you? That was literally the words that came out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. I've grown a lot since then. I learned a lot in this relationship because eventually what happened was I'm I'm a big sex geek and I just kept searching. What is going on in this relationship? I just don't understand. And we've we ended up breaking up about a week into the breakup i come across the term free sexual mm. and i in a i I, f- I looked on facebook i found one person on facebook who had mentioned it in a in a post and i i like direct messaged her and said what can you tell me about free sexuality i don't trust to ask my partner about this cuz i won't believe what he tells me right mm-hmm. and he didn't know even know the word right he, oh, he was he, when I did bring this to him, he was completely unaware. So so, so this wonderfully this wonderful kind, generous kind person, person was like, like sexuality is where you, where you move, move beyond, beyond, beyond sexual attraction, attraction because of your connection. Like it's a, yeah. that's how they that's described how they it, describe it, to, it me. to me. And mm-hmm. because it wasn't coming from my partner, I could kind of believe them. Mm-hmm. But the way it felt on the other side was that we were in this open relationship where he would literally fuck anything that moved. That's what it felt like to me. And he wouldn't touch me. Mm-hmm. And it felt cruel. It I had a hard time really wrapping my head around it. But it also made it make sense. And mm-hmm. so I reconnected with him and I said, I've got some information I want to share with you. And I shared the term sexual, And he was like, oh, wow. This makes a lot of sense. I've been in this situation before and I've just always moved on.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But you're somebody that I really care about. I just don't want to sleep with you. Mm-hmm. And um, it was hard and a wonderful, wonderful lesson in separating sex and love
1: mm-hmm. in a way
0: I never had before. Cause I, I totally believed I could have sex without love. Yeah. I had a really hard time understanding or comprehending the idea of having love without sex Mm -hmm. because they were so paired together for me. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So previous boyfriend, Kyle, I still love you to death. And it was a huge learning opportunity for me. Yeah. So that's That's how how it first entered my life. Yeah. Yeah. Then fast forward last okay so the spring of 2022 i was at a little fun little kinky board game weekend with a colleague and a whole bunch of her community and at that event i got to learn the term a fantasia which is where we don't see pictures oh okay yeah 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 Yeah. so her and i kind of learned this thing about each other Mm -hmm. she was also there's Ten people at this weekend little cabin in the woods. Three of us identified with aphantasia when it mm. was brought into the space, which it's supposed to be really rare. But I don't know, three out of ten doesn't <laughs> seem very rare. But anyways, so so, so her and I have been on, on this little, little journey day, of like we're, we're both surrogate partners, partners, and we're we're you know how, we we always talk about how does aphantasia team. tie into our life. life. She sends, sends me. me. A Marco Polo one day and she says, I'm reading this book on asexuality for a, a client that she was working with, and she's like, I'm really resonating with some of the stories in here. I don't think I experience sexual attraction. And I was like, Yeah. I don't know that I do either. And it's just been this weird at you know, for I'm forty eight now, but this stuff was happening at 47." I'm just, I'm just like, like it's so wild to be at this, this point, point and still, still like pulling like back layers, layers and layers yeah. of this onion to be able like as as, as my as, as my, I've as learned I'm more about myself, myself and I've built some, like my self-worth up, up the things, things that, are that are able to show up, up about, me about me are very different than I thought, I thought they were mm-hmm. because like when, like when I was using sex to gain self-worth or what I felt was self-worth, like Like, when I was was using using sex to to make sure sure my relationship relationship was okay, or or that I'm desirable, or, you know, know, these other external external reasons, reasons. once Once I I solved the 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 self-worth piece, piece. well, Well, what is my drive to have sex now?
1: now? Mm -hmm.
0: It changed for me. And then when when I started started to really really pick these little parts and pieces away from each other, other. I'm like, I don't, I think that might be that one thing that happened that one time at that one party where this guy was there and I walked in and I saw him and I went, holy shit, I think I'm going to go home with him tonight. And it scared the crap out of me. And a girlfriend said, do you want to get out of here and go play pool? And I said, yes, get me out of here. Cause it's, it was such a, foreign feeling to me Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. and when i
0: look back at that now i go oh i think it's because i don't experience sexual attraction and that that was that one little weird glimmer of it that popped up and kind of bit me in the ass for a second yeah yeah
1: i i can point to like two times in my life that i actually felt a really strong desire to have sexual interaction, but I still don't consider it sexual attraction because they were both at the beginning of relationships and we were making out (laughs) (laughs) and I knew that sex was on the table for them. And so it was kind of that, you know, I, I like to describe libido as the body kind of just asking for an orgasm. And sexual attraction is what says, I want this orgasm with that person. (laughs) And I'm finding another person sexually appealing. So I was falling in love. I had those intense, limerent feelings going on. My body was like, hey, I'd like some activity. So we were in a position where my body was responding to the stimulation of the moment. And in one of them, I actually remember kind of turning away. And going like okay I need to calm down now and they were very confused as to why I was trying to de-escalate the situation I'm kind of like because I feel like I want more right now but I didn't know how to articulate but I don't necessarily want it with you like I did but I didn't like it was it just it felt weird like there was this dissonance of Like, I'm really into this person. I really like this person. I enjoy this person touching me and cuddling me and all of this. Like, I am comfortable being sexual with this person, but at the same time, like, that feels like a weird thing to do with this person. (laughs) And and then the other situation, I just remember I couldn't get my panties off fast enough. (laughs) And that was exciting. It was fun. But again, it wasn't so much like, uh, like I am suddenly finding this person sexually irresistible or whatever. It was my body really wants this right now. This person is, I am falling in love with this person. This is what we do now, right? It's like, this is the activity we do now, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. When I pulled it apart. So, so one thing that my colleague and I did was we reached out to Aubrey to do a consult, because we, we kind of understand what was happening here and have different language for things. And you were so mm-hmm. helpful to really help me pull apart. What kind of attractions do I have? Mm-hmm. Because the attraction for a person versus the desire for sex are very different and I'm a responsive mm-hmm. desire person. So, I have to be aroused before the desire for sex shows up. So I know that part about me. So then I started to think, well, what does draw me to even want to do that part, right? The It's not, I don't look at a person and go, oh, I just want to have sex with them or I just don't. What I'll do is I'm really drawn to be close to them physically. Mm-hmm. I want intimacy, like platonic intimacy. I want like, I'm a touch pro, right? I want to know what their touch feels like. Mm-hmm. I want to it be intellectually intimate with them. Like, I have all these things that I want to do. I can feel that. When I started to pull the sex part out of it, I was able to get a lot of clarity on what I was drawn to.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And people, as I started to talk about this out loud, I remember before I had the... um consult with you. I was at an event with a bunch of sex therapists and whatnot. And I started to talk about the fact that I was going to be talking with you. And they immediately even in that sex therapy world were were, thought that when I said asexuality that that meant I didn't like sex. And I I felt like, maybe I don't want to ever talk about this. Maybe the word it's too much work to educate. And I'll just leave that part off of my list of labels or identities or orientations, like maybe it's just none of their business. I know how I work. Maybe that's all that's important, Mm -hmm. but then I keep finding myself talking about it anyways. And so I was like, no, we should probably just go ahead and record an episode so that I can direct people here for a much deeper conversation than maybe I'm going to have with them over drinks.
1: Uh huh.
0: Right. That, to explain that I'm still having sex because I want to have sex. Mm-hmm. What I'm not doing, and this is the part where their ego gets so wrapped up in this, mm-hmm. is when I say I'm not sexually attracted to you. Yeah, it's difficult. Feeling desire. is very important to some people. Yeah, and to again, where I had to pull apart sex and love,
1: Mm-hmm
0: they have to almost in a way, pull, pull this idea of why people have sex apart into different things. Like there's different buckets. Mm -hmm. And so, um, how I know I work and I keep talking about like, we've got to create our own owner's manuals. I remember picking up that terminology from like a poly podcast. What was it called? Um, I don't remember. I'm really bad at pulling these things up and, and I need almost like a Rolodex of everything I've ever released, listened to or read in my history. So I could just be like, that's it. Um, There was a poly podcast, polyamory mm-hmm. podcast that used to talk a lot about building your owner's manual so mm-hmm. that when you get a new partner, you can kind of let them know how you, how you work.
1: Yeah. And, and I do that. Template, menus, mm-hmm. Yeah. All those things.
0: And that's part of, I think, um, part of our adult adventure is figuring out those things yeah, and noticing when they change and updating our, our manual. And, and rather than trying to fix us and get us back to the way we used to be, mm-hmm. like my work lately on myself has been just accepting where things are, mm-hmm. how I'm showing up that that's okay. However it is yeah. and letting go of the, but remember Michelle, when you were the slutty woman that just like to run around and have sex with people. Yeah. And I'm not her anymore. And it's okay to be either one of those or somewhere in the middle. Right. And now maybe I look more monogamous to a lot of people because it's easier because I don't walk into a space and look at people and go, do I want to have sex with you? It doesn't cross my mind <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. yeah it's funny because one of the things that I realized through this is just how much the term poly affectionate resonates mm-hmm. for me that I've always had like multiple best friends because <laughs> that's the language we had and you know the idea of only having one best friend, and that you have to rank your friendship, and that there has to be this, you know, um, specific bond, and yet, I loved meeting new people, and building new bonds, and making new friends, and having those deep conversations and connections, and they didn't have to be sexual or romantic, but they were still on par and important to me. Like I've had relationships that were, you know, sexual romantic where they didn't understand the relationship I had with some of my friends and that I was not going to deprioritize those friendships for them. And it wasn't until I started really understanding sexuality that I started to understand why that was so important to me, that that's how I connect with so many people in my life.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that I wrote it down. I know I've heard you say it before when we talked before about this but mm-hmm. I, if I wrote it down it's in my pile of post-its over here that that need to be sorted but polyaffectionate definitely rings true for me. I was at a party the other day and I just I'm perpetually an educator, right? I I've really questioned if I should learn how to take that hat off sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but my, my husband assures me that I've always been this way, even before I started doing the work that I do. So I don't have to think like I'm working all the time. It's just kind of who I am. Mm -hmm. So I'm at this like pool party thing the other day and, um, this guy is sitting with me and I don't know, somehow, again, we start talking about I'm, um, responsive desire and what does that mean? And then I bring up the asexuality part and how I don't experience sexual attraction and I do the whole explanation that I just did here of like I get Mm -hmm. this desire to have closeness that eventually like just having skin-to-skin contact and soft touch and if you've got great touch then I'm like oh what would it feel like if you touched me somewhere else like Mm -hmm. it's not a sexual attraction it's the curiosity of like taking this to a, a different a different at least that's how I see it and you might read it differently I have no idea but fast forward, we're in the house that I'm in a crowded kitchen. I'm trying to, you know, squeeze my way around people to get to the little buffet of food. Same, same man, man is standing there who I've, I've made, made little jokes, jokes with at times. Um, we share a love of the same news program. And I'm like, Oh, you're my breaking points, boyfriend. I have two of them. So I'm poly. I'm, I have poly news boyfriends. Um, and, and so, I like come up behind him and I like touched him on the torso to kind of like, Hey, I'm here. I'm just going to kind of move around you. And he's like, Oh, and I said, now be careful. I might touch you enough that I might want to have sex. Like it's not about you, but the touch might, might make me want more touch Mm -hmm. kind of building off. Does that still count?
1: Count.
0: Like, in my head, I go, that's that's not sexual sexual attraction, attraction, right? It's Because what I recall so much from our thing was was that that sexual sexual attraction attraction is, like, directed at a person.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's it's subjective. There is, to some degree, you get to decide whether or not you consider that sexual attraction. Um, I think it's also important to recognize the concept of non-concordant arousal, that... um, Genital response does not necessarily equal subjective arousal, and that bodies can respond to sexual stimulation, whether or not the brain actually wants that or is in the right headspace for that or wants it from that person. Like, just because the body can get aroused and respond to sexual touch Like, there's many examples in our society of people who are not heterosexual, who are in heterosexual relationships, who are still able to have sex, who are still able to get aroused, who are still able to climax, and all of these things, and yet they finally realize at some point that they are not attracted to the gender that they are with, and because of the fact that they generally will have another gender that they can point to, they can say, oh, here's the problem. I'm not sexually attracted to this gender. I'm sexually attracted to this gender instead. And yet, when it comes to asexuality, we don't have that other to point to. So we're perpetually in that place of, you know, kind of, well, the body responds. I can, I can get aroused. I can get into this physical state. I can enjoy the pleasure. But there is some disconnect here. And it's not that I'm not in love with this person for, you know, for some situations. It's not that I don't enjoy this kind of stimulation. So what is it? And so finding that language about sexual attraction is that was a huge key for me, too, because that was part of it. When I when I heard the term asexual the very first time I heard it as the other end of a line from hypersexual.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And um, it was on one of those uh, charts. In a queer training where they have, you know, femininity to masculinity, hetero to homosexual. And then one of them, like they just had an expanded version of this, and one of them was asexual to hypersexual. So that was the first context that I actually heard the term. And I remember putting myself towards the asexual end of that spectrum, but I was understanding it as more a libido than anything. Mm -hmm. and for some people that is how they connect to asexuality which is why it gets so frustrating because it's so easy for us to have misconceptions about what asexuality is and not relate to it because of one specific pathway but there's so many different pathways to asexuality and for a lot of people it's about that sexual attraction that's one of the primary pathways for a lot of people but it's not the only one so you know it was when i finally heard the term in relation to whether or not it was part of the you know lgbtqia plus community it was somebody saying well asexual people are lgbtq and i went well of course they are right then the acronym i kind of knew that but i never like i never spent any time thinking about it because we make these automatic assumptions then i went down the rabbit hole and found the language of sexual attraction versus romantic attraction and aesthetic attraction, sensual attraction, emotional attraction, platonic attraction. And that's where my brain just went, oh, oh, so this is, first of all, an orientation. That was a big key for me for relating to it, to understand it as an orientation, not just this libido scale. And also to understand that language, to recognize that I did experience romantic attraction and that's what I had been mistaking for sexual attraction all this time. But when I really started to break it down, I went, Oh yeah, no, I, I was in romantic attraction all that time.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and when you don't, it's not like a, a, a light switch turns on or off. And so you can say, I remember when I had this thing and now it's gone. Like you can't <laughs> see the difference. Yeah. Right. And I, and I, I know now when I'm in these spaces with people that I'm drawn to for lots of different reasons, whether it be aesthetics or intellectual attraction, or again, that desire to just have closeness with them. Mm -hmm. Now I'm looking at it from a place of like, Oh, it makes so much sense now that I never clock. I don't clock the sexual attraction piece. Mm -hmm. And, and when I was talking about it at this pool party, the guy goes, man, I'm kind of envious. Cause like my world revolves around sexual attraction and I wish it didn't sometimes. <laughs> and I said, yeah. And I'm kind of envious of you too. Cause I want to know what that feels like in a way. Cause I've had that one little time and it scared the shit out of me. <laughs> like I would like to be somewhere. Could we just merge and get somewhere in the middle of a nice, happy medium? That might be kind of interesting. <laughs> so I, I just like, it's not that people in the world here. It's not that I don't like sex. Yeah. It takes a lot of work for me to get to the sexual desire part. Mm-hmm. Because I don't even have sexual attraction working for me. You know what I mean? Like it's it feels like, like you can approach me for it and you better be really good at hearing no. Mm-hmm. And be willing to go through that kind of um field of potential no's because my partner he's so good at knowing that I might not get there I might not get to the point of sexual desire and and I have to know that it, I feel safe to say yeah this this isn't isn't the thing but if you want to come cuddle with me and show me that you've got really great conscious touch it might work yeah you know this idea that has to be
1: this all or nothing thing, or that sexual activity is the pinnacle of connection. Right. That's where we have to start deconstructing things and start to recognize that there are so many different forms of intimacy and connection and pleasure and attraction and all of these different ways that we have of relating to people. Sexual is just one of many, 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 many options. And yet our society says that, well, that has to be the main one. And that has to be the goal. Right. And anything else is less than. And so we're we're starting to finally have the language to say, that's my goal. I have Mm -hmm. other things that bring me pleasure that I can center in a relationship, other ways of connecting that are my preference. Mm-hmm.
0: You know? Yeah. That's the intimacy lab. This is what I want to do here is kind of blow open what we think about when we think about intimacy. Mm-hmm. You know, the um, censorship has not helped this at all mm-hmm. because we have to use code words for everything, right? right? And so, intimacy is code word for sex. And um, in my work, uh, most of my work is so much on the platonic side of intimacy. Mm-hmm. It's delicious.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Like it's so delicious. And sometimes we get like um, in surrogate partner work, if erotic does come into that space, sometimes you'll hear clients say things like after they've had an erotic experience and we have our pillow talk time, right, where we're cuddled up and just basking in our oxytocin together. They'll say, Oh, this is like this is this is really what intimacy is, right? It's this kind of closeness. Mm -hmm. They they learn that the sex part is just it's just part of a a myriad of of ways of connecting. Yeah. But I think that a lot of people in our society use sex as a regulator. Mm Mm-hmm. And they—that's the only way they see intimacy, and it becomes, I think, a burden on their relationship.
1: Yeah, that could be a challenge when that is what somebody needs to become regulated, and for another, they need to be regulated in order to access that.
0: Yep. <laughs> yep. That's I mean, my um, first marriage. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and um, even the term erotic can be non-sexual. Like that's not even in innately always sexual, though often it is given that context. Um, I actually like when people in social media use the term spicy as their alternative to sexual. Mm. I think that at least helps to make it clear that it's not all kinds of intimacy or the only kind of intimacy. They're talking about spicy intimacy or spicy time. I think that's cute.
0: Be careful, Aubrey, because now that's going to be on like the flag terms that we can't use. Anymore. Yeah, right. What is have
1: to gonna... keep coming up with new?
0: Oh, my goodness. It's so it's so hard and it's so frustrating. And it makes me wonder, how are we supposed to even navigate social media as mm-hmm. professionals and sexuality? And um, but what are our other options? I mean, mm-hmm. I just feel like we're our hands are tied in so many ways and the people that decide to step off of social media, I just don't understand how, how are we supposed to like, it's a hard, we're already in a hard career.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Right.
0: (laughs) People are not, you know, knocking on our door, standing in line waiting for their first chance to, to work with us. Right. We have to like go out and acquire clients and, educate them everywhere as to why they need to have extra support or what we can provide them in a, in a a professional container. And we can't talk about it. Yeah. I mean, sex
1: educator, sexuality educator, however you want to say it, it isn't even a job listing on job sites, like sex therapist I found on LinkedIn, but not sex educator. Like you, you can't even have your own title i mean obviously it's even more of a problem for anything any sort of body work but but even just sexuality educator this this is a thing that exists why is it not even an option
0: yeah and it's such a underappreciated role Mm
1: -hmm.
0: like i feel guilty sometimes when I compare like how easy it is for me to make a buck because I get to touch people compared to people that don't get to touch people it it's it's unfair and we need more we need more of the sex education preferably before they show up at my door right
1: finding even the space to bring that in as an as a educational field like in under you know the under 18 crowd it's expected to be done by the health teacher at a school so there's a few people out there that actually go into schools as professional sexuality educators but it's really rare usually the school district is just has their own curriculum that they buy from some source that they give to their teachers to Administer, So it's not even being administered by people who are trained in this field. And then on a college level, you may have human sexuality professionals, you may actually have people who actually know what they're talking about in that setting, but it's an elective. You know, it's not like it's a mandatory part of the curriculum. And then that's why I actually loved doing the in-home parties, because Mm -hmm. it was one of the few places that I would be talking to people that had never had these conversations before. Mm -hmm. People who had never had an orgasm, people who had no idea about the need for clitoral or gland stimulation. You know, there's just so much basic information that they had never even heard. You know, they were using baby oil as a lube or, you know, whatever. So that would be the very first time they ever heard this information. And sometimes it was because they went to a friend's house or sometimes like I did bachelorette parties. Mm. And then I'd really get people that, like, they were there for the Bachelorette. They weren't there for me. When I did yep. this for fun parties, they were there for me. Bachelorette parties, you know, I'd have grandma sitting in the corner. Right. <laughs> and, you know, I, I I got tons of great feedback. But there was always a couple that were just like, I don't even know what I got myself into.
0: <laughs> but at least you got paid. Yes, that's what I found in the world was that you could make good money doing Mm -hmm. that. That was my primary income. That's why
1: I went. I just went back to it. Yeah.
0: I mean, (laughs) it was a way to educate and get paid. Yeah, that was where the money was, was in the sales. Those two things don't Mm -hmm. go together all Mm -hmm. that often, unfortunately.
1: No, I have to fight for a paycheck as an educator with that solely being my work. I thought like, hey, I'll go do conferences and stuff. That'll be a few thousand dollars, right?
0: Out of your pocket. (laughs) Out of my pocket,
1: right? Yeah, I went and, um, you know, I've spoken for several different conferences and a couple of them have paid me, but most of them, I had to pay for the registration and the honor of speaking. There was no honorarium of any kind. You had to go through the process of putting in the application, creating an entire abstract and the slides and all of the time and effort going into that for their benefit while their vendor room is packed with people that paid to sell their products at that event. And yet they're not paying the speakers, except maybe the keynote.
0: Yeah. And, and travel and... Oh my God. I've done so much through virtual, thank goodness.
1: But travel is just so much more on top of that. I spent $500 traveling to a conference earlier this year for the honor of presenting and paying for my registration.
0: I just bought, as we wrap up the year, I was starting to think about my taxes. And I was like, you're doing okay this month, Michelle. I think you should go ahead and purchase all those conference tickets that you need to. I don't need to go to them, but um, in San Diego, the uh, the Embody Lab is coming (laughs) for a big somatic conference. And I'm like, well, that's my jam and it's in my backyard it'd be great for networking. It'll be, you know, I'll learn something on top of it and I don't even have to travel. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then sex positive con will be coming up in February also. And I'm like, again, it's in my back. I mean, it's Burbank, but it's in my backyard and it's being good networking. Yeah. Oh, good. I'll see you there. Um, and then I'm like,
1: we'll actually meet in person.
0: I know. Um, DC's got a couple conferences. One psych like networker I go to every year. It's like Comic-Con for me as a therapy nerd. Like Aww. I don't go cause I, I, I'm not presenting there, but it's like, uh, I just, I like that space. I love all the presenters. It's top notch. Um, and then there's another uh, conference that hit our radar that their theme is sex this year. And it's like the something analytics, it's some division of the APA or something. I don't know. We put in a proposal for that, but we haven't heard back yet, but um, I'm like, I'm going to go whether I get picked or not, just because it's good to be represented there. A bunch of us surrogate partners are. And then of course, ASAC coming around the bed again, like we just, It's, it's like, I like doing these things and it costs a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And since I have a partner that does well enough that I don't have a big, like, Michelle's got to hit the, hit a certain number or we're not going to be able to pay our mortgage. Um, I feel like I can do it. And so it's kind of like, I have enough privilege to be able to go do those things and kind of try to help raise awareness to, you know, body workers and all that goodness that doesn't get talked about enough. Um, I get to go, but it's a lot. I hear that. Yeah, I have the
1: support from my family here so that, you know, my bills are paid and, you know, I'm, I'm not reliant on my income to survive, which I very much appreciate and recognize as a privilege, but I'm not making enough to really do anything particular fun
0: with it. Yeah, yeah. I I guess this is my fun. hmm And at least I can write it off as a business expense, I guess. Right? There's yeah. the plus side. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. Um I'm thinking, is there anything else I want to say about this topic? I think that I think what I'm learning is that, again, this goes back to do whatever works for you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, I've, I feel a real strong need to understand myself in having the language that you helped me with really help put those puzzle pieces together to where my nervous system was. Oh, OK. We know the labels. We have the idea of how this fits. We can relax a little bit. I love understanding myself a little bit more than I did the day before. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you've certainly been really, really helpful in that. So thank you for the work that you do. My pleasure. Um, I'm glad it's been can, helpful. Yeah. Do you have anything you want to add before we let people know where they can find you?
1: Um, yeah, my my website is acesexeducation.com. I'm also on Instagram and Technically, on TikTok, I need to be a little more active over there. It's
0: hard to talk about sex on TikTok, though.
1: Yeah. Um, I I haven't... I don't know. I feel like... I, I enjoy doing the infographics on Instagram. That's mm-hmm. where I feel a little bit more comfortable. When I get on the video, I I feel like either I'm being really fake or I'm being way too honest. <laughs> I <laughs> don't know where... Yeah. I don't make organic
0: TikTok stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, I'll throw, like, I'll throw a a teaser from this interview onto TikTok. Um, I don't, I don't get into, I don't feel real comfortable there either. And I feel Mm -hmm. really comfortable in a lot of other places, but that one is, I can't crack that one or I don't want to or something like that. I hear that. Well, thanks so much for, for being here. If I think of anything else, I'll, I'll hit you up and report back or something. I don't know. But I think I, I'm i just excited to like, I don't like to be in the closet about anything. And the more I talk about this specifically of like how I understand my sexuality around this, I get a lot of people going, oh, well, that makes me question if I have sexual attraction, mm-hmm. right? And I think these conversations are just really important to get us out of the um, the normative general ideas of what we think sex is or what we think attraction is or what we think um relationships look like or yeah. all these different components that we can really break apart into little tiny slivers and create the the version that works for us.
1: And that's that's such a huge part of it is because there there I, I often get people who are wondering, you know, am I asexual? Am I on the asexual spectrum? You know, can I use this language? And I think that's kind of the point though is, yes, please use mm-hmm. the language, because regardless of where you might be on the spectrum or not on the spectrum, we still deal with compulsory sexuality. We still deal with a mononormativity. you know, compulsory sexuality, the assumption that everyone wants and needs sex, and that we must be defined by some kind of sexual attraction. And that amato normativity that Elizabeth Brake coined the term for to, that hierarchical prioritization of sexual, romantic, exclusive, amorous relationships as the pinnacle of human relationships that everyone must aspire to, that relationship escalator that completely ignores the value of platonic relationships, of platonic of non sexual activities and pleasures and intimacy. And simply by having that language, you know, whether or not you want to explore your place on these spectrums, you can still explore what non sexual pleasure and non sexual intimacy means for you and how you might find some of those experiences to be what you want to prioritize in a relationship and maybe decenter sex doesn't necessarily mean eliminate sex doesn't mean sex isn't important for a person and maybe it isn't <laughs> but it it just means that maybe that isn't the most important thing for a person
0: or that we need it all i mean we yeah. don't need sex right <laughs> but but a lot of relationships suffer mm-hmm. when the when the only focus of connection is around sexual right. contact mm-hmm. right and that is the, the thing that I, I think as a culture, we just really got to look at, at connection in such a bigger way. Because if, if I'm married to you or not married to you, and you think you're gonna cash out that sex machine on a regular basis and not feed me in other ways,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I'm gonna run out real quick. Yeah. I'm gonna run out real quick. And that is from somebody who actually enjoys sex and, and likes to have sex. And in the other realm of people that 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 are that are sexually repulsed, still get to be in relationship.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Our value is not on how we show up sexually in relationship. Yeah, that a sexless marriage doesn't have to be sad or
1: you know a problem. That for some people, a sexless marriage is the goal. That is the ultimate kind of relationship that they want to be in and that we, you know, just in all of these aspects, regardless of orientation, we can make space for people to just not want sex or Mm -hmm. to not prioritize sex and to have other or, or to prioritize solo sex, Mm -hmm. that it's okay. Even when in a committed partnership to prefer
0: solo sex, There's nothing wrong with you, right? Mm -hmm. We look at that and we pathologize it all of the time, right? Mm -hmm. What's wrong is when you're not talking to each other and coming to some mutuality and how we're going to maneuver in the relationship when somebody's not talking about it and they feel like either it's the one direction of my partner took sex away from me, Mm -hmm. right? Or from the the side of I'm doing this and I don't want to do it. Mm Mm-hmm. And then all yeah, the gap in between, sex. right?
1: <laughs> really Because we don't
0: think we can ask for something else or we don't mm-hmm. know these things about ourselves. And we get into these relationships um, just not knowing and having expectations placed on us by society rather mm-hmm. than actually negotiating what these relationship agreements look like within the, the partnership or.
1: Right. The idea that you can even negotiate any of that is relatively new in (laughs) human conversations or at least recorded history.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm hoping it's changing. So we are definitely probably part of that conversation today. Mm -hmm. Um, Thanks so much, Aubrey. Thank you. We'll see you again soon. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to comment, pose a question, or learn more about the guests often featured on the show, visit us at intimacylabpodcast.com. Please also take a moment to review us on your favorite podcast app. It's one of the best ways to show your support. As for me, you can find out more about my work at meetmichellerenay.com, as well as on most social medias at meetmichellerenay. Let's connect again soon.